Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We are so glad you're here with us uh, this morning. Jumping into week three of Exodus. Hi, buddy. <laughs> but before we get there, I got to tell you guys, you're ridiculous. Like, you just are. I hope you know that. You didn't have to do Pastor's Appreciation Month, and not only did you do it, you, you just blessed us incredibly. Uh, I just want to say thank you from Olivia and I. Um, you guys are just, you're awesome. We love pastoring here. It's our joy and, and honor to be serving here, and, and thank you. Thank you for the, those gifts. Um, I, I realize I'm at the stage in my life where they are going towards diapers. Like, I just realized that as <laughs> diapers, diapers, like, th- this is my stage of life, but I appreciate that because you all know how expensive those things are. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for that. Hey, we are in uh, week three, jumping into X. To this. We got uh, a bunch of good content to cover today, but if you've missed it, that video is a good recap for you uh, of what we've covered over the last several weeks. And one of the things uh, that really has been true of the story of Exodus is that it's your story. It's yours and my story that as we read it, we need to read it with the filter of not just ancient stories in the past, but what is it that these things are revealing about us and what's true about us that God would be interacting with us in our life today. Um, so in week one, David kicked us off by basically saying we, we all have the same starting point in life in which we are all enslaved to sin. Uh, Whether we know that or not, whether we admit that or not, whether we call it something different or not, uh, we all have found ourselves captive by the appetites and desires that eventually and will inevitably lead to bondage. Um, And that is just the reality of each one of us. And so... In that, though, God has a solution, and the solution is what's captured in the book of Exodus, where God begins to draw his people out of slavery, which we would see as slavery to sin, and into freedom. And so that was week one, as we kind of set the stage for where we're going. Week two said uh, how God was going to do that was through a man named Moses. Moses was a man full of insecurities, much like the rest of us, and yet in spite of those insecurities, God was going to use him in the same way that he's going to use you and I that despite our insecurities, God has a great message of hope to deliver through us that if we would just say yes to God and allow him to work through our insufficiencies, we'd find him um, more than enough to do everything he's asked us to do through us. And so that's where we've been. And so now we're going to pick it up uh, really where um, Exodus kind of gets interesting and the story gets um, a little bit intense where Moses agrees to listen to God and do what he says. Um, So Moses argued with God a little bit about going to Pharaoh, uh, but he agrees to go back and talk to Pharaoh, who, if you don't know, is the most powerful ruler in the known world, one of the most wicked uh, men, thought himself a god, and he's going to walk into his palace with a stick and his brother and tell him to let his people go. So Exodus chapter 5 is where we're going to pick up today. I'd encourage you to, to open your Bible if you don't have one. Uh, we would love to get one in your hand for free back at the Welcome Center. If not, it'll be on the screen here behind us. But Exodus chapter 5 is where we're going to pick up. We're going to cover a lot of chapters today. So just going to uh, see what God has for us today. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. I want you to picture this scene um, and imagine yourself being Moses, walking in there with your shepherd's staff to the most powerful man in the world and saying, Hey, you need to let go of the majority of your workforce that makes your empire really kind of work. Why? Well, because our God said so, right? Like the the whole scene is a little bit interesting. and, And what you need to understand is that this wouldn't really have been a shock to Pharaoh, though. 
for, for them to claim that their God was telling them to do something wouldn't have been unrealistic. They lived in a pluralistic society, which meant everybody kind of had their God, and they worshiped their God, and they did their thing, which we're going to talk about through today. But it wouldn't have been a shock to hear that the Hebrews had a God. In the same way, it's very similar to our society now, which is incredibly pluralistic, where you can worship this, you can worship that, follow this religion, right? Everybody just kind of has their God. The, the group that would call themselves true atheists is really only about 3%, okay? Um, it's, we've been told it's a huge group, but it's really only about 3% of people who believe God doesn't exist. And so Pharaoh's in this category of like, sure, there's a God, but he's asking the question about God that you ask about God, that your friends ask about God, that, that the world asks about God, and it's in fact the most important question you can ask about God, and here's what Pharaoh said. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's asking the question of, yeah, sure, I, I get that he is a God, but why does he have authority over my life? Why does your God all of a sudden get to dictate how I live my life? And if you listen to the conversations around us, that's the question that's being asked. Well, you serve a God who tells you you can't do this, this, and this. Who is he that he could, would tell you what to do with that? It's, it's your choice, right? And the question is, why should something or someone have authority over me? This is the question of Pharaoh. It's the question you ask every time you stumble into sin. See, the thing about Pharaoh... What's really interesting is he was kind of worshipped as a god. He was worshipped as deity. He was connected to Ra, the, the god of the sun. Um, and, and while you may not have a statue to yourself that you worship, you're more like Pharaoh than you are unlike Pharaoh. You may not think yourself a god, but we certainly think we're smarter than him, don't we? We certainly think we're wiser than God. We certainly think we know better than God. We certainly think we're more capable of deciding what a good life for us is than God, which is why you get mad when things don't go your way. Because you thought you knew what was best for your life, and so when you steer this way, all of a sudden, what is God doing? How could he? He must not know what's good and right. Why? Because you think you're smarter than him. Because I think I'm smarter than him. For, for example... The Bible is explicitly clear um, that sex is designed for a man and a woman under the covenant relationship of a marriage. But if you listen to even many Christians or other people talking, what they will say is that's antiquated, outdated, and irrelevant for us. God was missing something. See, what's the statement behind there? Who is the Lord that I should obey him with my body? Right? That, that's really the question that's being asked. Anytime you sin, really, anytime I sin, it's really the question. So God's going to answer the question for Moses, for Egypt, and ultimately what we'll see, this is an answer that the whole world sees because if you get a couple chapters later, basically every known nation around is going, whoa, don't mess with their God, right? So he's about to make a statement. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Let's jump over and see what the statement is. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians." This phrase in here with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment with the, the connotation that it brings with it is essentially God's up in heaven going, all right, you want to fight? Let's fight. This outstretched arm is basically like God's about to flex on the gods, but I want you to see why. 
He's about to destroy and dismantle one by one, take down these idols so that everyone may know the answer to the question of the soul. Who are you that I should obey? He's about to give every reason why he is Lord and nothing else is. Let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 7. There are 10 plagues in total. We don't have time to cover all 10. We'd be here for three weeks. Uh, if I got through all of these, we're going to cover five um, that really are perhaps the most relevant for us. So Exodus chapter 7, verse 19. Let's watch God flex. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, and over the ponds and all the reservoirs. They will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water began to change into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Here in this first plague, what we see is not just calamity and not just difficulty, but God is going to one by one begin to dismantle the key gods that existed in um, the Egyptian worldview. And so the first one uh, was dedicated to the River Nile. The Nile was essential to everything that happened in Egypt. Um, if the Nile flooded as it would every year, it would flood the, the Nile Basin, which would allow fertility and allow it to grow, and that's basically how they survived. There was a saying that as the Nile goes, so goes Egypt. They depended on this as their source of life, and the God specifically that they are worshiping for that, and the God that the real God is attacking is the God Happy. So Happy was the, the God of the Nile, and essentially was responsible for, um, if you wanted uh, fullness of life, essentially, or a source of life, you would go, and if you needed crops, you needed things, you'd go and you'd worship Happy. You'd offer sacrifices, you'd do whatever you have to do to keep Happy happy. Don't let that word be lost on you. See, because here, what God is going to do, and why I've picked these ones, is because I want you to see God is not interested in just destroying this idol. This idol is literally nothing. First Corinthians tells us it's just a piece of wood. But there's an idea behind everything that we worship, and that is what God is going to dismantle. See, by attacking, attacking the Nile, what he was showing Egypt was that this thing that you think is your source of life, I will ruin, and you will understand that you have been chasing something false as the source of your life. See, the source of life for many of us, what we would define as the good life, would be one of happiness. So I've traveled all over the world, and it doesn't matter where you are, we all have the same deep craving inside of our heart. We desire the good life. That a good life is defined uh, by kind of a few things, gladness, joy, community, good food, right? Like when you think about a good life, you're surrounded by the people you love and care about. You're laughing a ton. You're eating your favorite food. Now you're all going to disagree on what that favorite food is, but it's all across the globe. That's when we realize the good life. See, we chase it relentlessly. You're sold things. I'm sold things. Every time you go online, come find this. This will be your flourishing. This will be your joy. This will be your fullness. What God is showing them is it's all a lie. He just begins to dismantle what they thought was their source and say, you've gone to the wrong place. Let's jump to chapter 8, verse 1. Seven days had passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. That's the last verse of chapter 7. So basically what happens, um, the waters turn to blood, and 
Pharaoh says, I'm smarter than God. And so he just goes and he like digs a ditch around and he realizes that if he can sift the water through the sand, he can get some water. And so for seven days, everybody's drinking muddy, dirty water because he won't repent. We've all been there though, right? We chased what we thought would deliver and it didn't. So we end up with something that is a semblance of joy, but it's not. A semblance of happiness, but it's not. And so for seven days, the people suffer. So seven days later, this happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will team with frogs, then they will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed and in the house of your officials and on your people and in your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come upon you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. The frogs came up and covered the land, but the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Aaron and Moses, or Aaron, and said, Moses and Aaron, excuse me, pray to the Lord and take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Jump to verse 12. After Moses and Aaron left uh, Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the house and in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and, they would, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So it wasn't bad enough that they couldn't drink water. They weren't listening. So God sends another punishment and the way of attacking another one of their gods. And the god that he's attacking here is the god Heket. Now, Heket is a frog god who is responsible um, really for kind of fruitfulness is what he would, they would worship him for. So if you wanted crops to grow, um, he's also got a fertility. So if you wanted families, like if you wanted success, if you wanted abundance, this was the god that you went and offered sacrifices to. Why he's a frog, I don't know. Okay, um, I feel like if you're going to pick a god to do something, I wouldn't have picked a frog. But anyway, so God attacks this and he says, okay, you think in your palaces and in your things and your accumulation of stuff, you have provided some source of joy in your life. But watch this. I'm going to send frogs and they're going to be in everything. In your palace, in your oven, in your kneading bowls, on your friends and your servants. Like there's no escape from this. And really what he's attacking and dismantling is this idea that the things that I build with my hands will ultimately protect me and make me above. The things, the fruitfulness, my hard work will earn me something. And he just begins to dismantle that, essentially saying everything you build as an alternative to worshiping God, but as an alternative to worshiping the work of your hands, will one day end up in a trash heap. Just like these frogs, it will be stacked high and begin to rock, rot and reek. It cannot do anything to add value to your soul. See, fruitfulness, as God is going to define for them, is only found in a right relationship with God. And then there's fruitfulness to no end. But it's the pride of man that he's going after here. But what I want you to see, really, what's most important out of this one is Pharaoh's response. Let's, let's read verse 15 again. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. 
What I've experienced to be true in, in pastoral ministry and, and many have experienced to be true in pastoral ministry is there are seasons of difficulty, there are seasons of trial and, and loss that cause many people to walk in these doors. Uh, we're, we're grateful that we are, they do. We're not upset about this. But, but what I have experienced is that these hardships for this moment in our life, we're reminded we're not in control. We're reminded we're not God. A sickness strikes. A marriage falls apart. Some semblance of a tragedy happens, and we come into church, and we, we find God, and we find Jesus, and we cling to him, and, and he's our hope, and that difficulty really was, was hard, but it drove me to God, and so they come in. They're here every week. They're going to Bible study. They're doing all the right things, and then they get better. The difficulty passes. The sickness goes away. The relationship is restored, and the moment happens where the relief makes them forget who God was. Then they stop coming. Then they stop attending. Then they stop digging in. Why? Because God was really just a means to an end. Just fix this. God was great at that point in my life. Now I'm back in control. See, now most of us wouldn't articulate the fact that we think we're in control of our life, but we feel pretty good about some of our decisions. We eat enough spinach and blueberries. We went on the treadmill the other day. Our bank account's adding up. Like We feel like we kind of have this thing figured out until something happens in which we realize we don't have it figured out at all. So God breaks that. And see, what Pharaoh does is what we're tempted to do. God, I need you. Oh, thanks for coming through. See you later. And Pharaoh just begins to harden his heart and say, I will not submit the rest of my life. Though God spared me, I am still the master of my own destiny. Let's read the next one, 8, 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust on the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Here he is attacking the God set. We don't have a picture for him, but the God set was responsible for peace over the soul, peace and comfort in the soul, essentially. So you were dealing with a loss, you had anxiety, right? whatever it was, you'd go to this God and you'd worship him. Now we have a God, we don't call him set, but we have whole bunch of other things that we go to when we need peace and comfort in our soul. And so he's attacking this. And what I find so interesting is it's gnats that he chooses to use, right? You know, like, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's 74, sitting on your back deck, just ready to eat some food. And then you just get attacked by a bunch of gnats, right? Like, nothing disturbs that moment. Like, gnats, like, in the eye, in the mouth, like, on your sandwich. Like, you're ever swatting flies. Like, we're so committed. I said this for a service, and I said I was going to get in trouble. I'm still going to get in trouble. I'm going to say it anyway. We're so committed to getting rid of gnats. Last night, we're laying in bed, and all of a sudden, I hear, whack. I'm like, what is going on? And my wife's, like, pulling her hand off her forehead. There was a gnat. Like, hates gnats that much, willing to palm face herself to get rid of the gnat, right? So just, just destroying peace and comfort. And so everywhere they go, it's relentless. See, what he's really getting after in this one, it doesn't matter how much modern technology we have, how much progress we've made. Everybody thought by now we'd be sleeping more, happier, all those things. You know, we're, we're the most restless, depressed, and anxious generation that's ever lived. 
Why? Because none of those things can do anything to satisfy the problem that's gone wrong in our soul, and that's we crave God. And so we run to food, we run to this, we run to that, we run to all of these sorts of things to try to find comfort, and God's saying, none of that will deliver you. Like, you could have as much money as it takes. You still have the same problems when you put your head down at the end of the night. Tom Brady, many of you know Tom Brady. Um, he had just won, this was not this last Super Bowl, but the previous Super Bowl that he won. There's too many to count, right? So he had just won his previous Super Bowl, and he goes back to his hotel room, and he's sitting there looking at his rings, plural, and he asks the question. He says, is this it? Really? Like you just proved to be the most capable football player in the league. You just have another ring, which guys spend their entire life chasing, by the way. You have multiple of them. Your Victoria's Secret's supermodel wife is coming out of the bathroom anytime now, and you're still asking the question, oh, and he's worth $270 million, and he's the broke one in the relationship. His wife is worth $400 million. He was getting tired of traveling around commercially, so she bought him a private jet. Like, come on. And still asking the question, is this it? Like, you don't even have to think if you can afford things at that point. You have almost $700 million to your name. Do I want that? Can I afford that? Yeah, of course I can. Your question is not where do I want to go to dinner. It's what state do I want to go to dinner in because I can just jump on my wife's private jet that my sugar mama bought for me and go over there and have a good steak, right? Like, though, that's the life that he lives that none of us are ever going to know. And yet it did nothing to solve and has done nothing to solve the problem deep within his soul. And yet, you and I from time to time can be convinced the next pay raise will finally bring us peace. The next whatever will finally remove the stress from our life and kind of saying, chase all you want. It will just be gnats following you. You will never get there apart from finding soul satisfaction in the creator. Let's look at the last one. Chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. Festering boils will break out on the people and animals throughout the land. He's attacking two gods here, but the one primarily that he's attacking is the god Sunu. Sunu was responsible for health. So if you you were sick, you went to him. He put boils that you couldn't escape all over them, which are awful. I've never had one, but I can't imagine how painful they have to be. What he's doing is attacking the God of health. And I think 2019 and 2020 has revealed this to be a secretive little idol in our lives. Like, I, I didn't know it was there until this last year pulled the cover back, and all of a sudden, the God of health became paramount. Like health became so important, we were willing to cut people out of our lives for it. Say incredibly uh, barbaric things about people because of it. And make choices that we would never have made otherwise. Why? Because the God of health was at risk. Now hear me, I'm a health coach. All right? I used to make money helping people be healthy. I believe strongly in taking care of your health. But here's what I have found to be true about it. It can become a God. Because what really, you don't really worship health but you worship the certainty of being in control of your life. I worship the certainty of knowing that if I do these certain things, the outcome of my life will be different. I can extend my life. But, but let me tell you what. Cancer doesn't care how much spinach you eat. Dementia doesn't care how much Sudoku you do. All right? Heart attacks don't care how much you run. Now do those things. They're good for you. 
But what he's ultimately revealing here is the pride of man, in which we think I can do these sorts of things and control my destiny. Listen, I don't care if it's modern medicine or thieves in the bottom of your feet. You don't control your health. Why? Because what God was revealing here by putting this on everybody was that he is the author of your life. Whether you want to submit to it or not, he has the number of your days. The psalmist says this, Psalms 139. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There's a number on your life, and we don't get to control that. Now, be responsible. Be wise. But the God of health, he just pulls back and says, listen, you're alive because I want you alive. And so, um, really, this surrender comes down to the heart of man and control over our own life. Do I trust you to be God over my days, or do I know best? Something to consider. So, over the past, these four that he dismantles really are summarized as this. He, let's throw this up here. He, he attacks really the false source of life that they've come to understand. They've been chasing the wrong thing to find satisfaction for their soul. It is not found in a river. It's found in a relationship with the Lord. He's attacking the God of happiness. This is probably the most destructive message to a genuine life of joy in Jesus is that God is for your happiness. Well, God wouldn't want that for me because God wants me to be happy. God wants you to be holy, And in being holy, you will find the greatest joy ever. But if you filter your obedience to God based on happiness, you'll end up at a dry well every time. It goes after fruitfulness and say, build what you want, but know ultimately it is what the Lord chooses to bless that lives. And he goes after health and the pride of man and saying, listen, I am the Lord and I have your days numbered. See, what he's doing here through um, the attack over the Egyptian idolatry is what he's doing in our life all the time, and it's what he's revealed in the 10 plagues, which is this. God will destroy every idol to show me he alone is God. He was destroying every false place they could go so that when they looked up and saw carnage from the false places they used to go, they would go, whoa, you are it. See, and I've watched God do this around me. In the same way that Egypt or Israel was supposed to watch Egypt, I've watched God destroy uh, idolatry in marriages to show me that my wife is awesome, but she cannot ultimately be the satisfaction to my soul. Like, we, you know that lie we believed. <laughs> like, the good life was on the other side of getting married, finding one you loved, and having a little bit of money in your pocket to do what you wanted. And then you got married, and you saw a side of crazy that you didn't know was in there when they dated because they covered it up, right? <laughs> Listen, you all know what I'm talking about, all right? She saw it in me, okay? I'm not pointing at her. This, is, this one's about me, okay? But what happened there? I thought you would deliver something, and you didn't. There was a lie there. I so said, I've watched God destroy those idols. I've watched God destroy and pull apart idolatry within parents' and kids' relationships. Why? To show me that as gorgeous and adorable as that little boy is, Jocko can never be a god in my life. I've watched God make incredibly rich men miserable and rob all of their wealth from them to show me that I don't put my trust in money, but in God. I've watched God destroy leaders in the pursuit of power to show me that no amount of accolades is going to add any value to my soul. See, those are warnings for us. See, because I've watched God do it in my own life, too. Just rip idolatry from my life. You know what's interesting in this is we can begin to be angry at God when he does it. 
We can begin to be mad at God when he does it. How could you take that from me? Well, it's because I serve the God of happiness. That's why I'm mad about it. (laughs) But why would we be mad when God is, in his grace, removing something that is ultimately going to leave us empty, broken, and wanting more, and then offering us abundant life? Like, we get mad about that process. Why? Because we want this idolatry. No, you want what's offered through this idolatry. Where God is saying, no, in my mercy, let me reveal to you, you're going to empty wells, that you would find life and life abundant, John 10, 10. You'd find the full life. See, it's found in worship of God. I want you to see what's said about Jesus in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, one day, whether in joyful and glad submission or in regret and repentance, we will all say, who is the Lord? He is the Lord. And he is worthy of my obedience. See, that's, that's not a choice. That is an inevitable end. But the choice is that we stand in worship of him in that moment, say, glory to God, you delivered me from what was empty. You delivered me from what was broken. I worship you. See, the whole reason, and this was listed multiple times throughout, he said, let my people go that they may worship me, that they may worship me. What is he saying? I want them to experience what the joy is found in worshiping the one true God. See, God desires to bring you out of slavery and into worship. The reason God will destroy the idols in your life is because he wants you to experience full life. And he knows that you were created to worship him and full life is found in that place. So when we, we set aside all of the false things we've run to and, and we, we know what they are. Maybe, maybe you don't know what they are. And one of the ways you can find out what might be an idol in your life is you, you worry about what you worship. I, I worry about what I worship. So the thing that consumes your mind, you think about it, it's the thing you lose sleep over. It's a pretty good indicator that that's become a place of idolatry in your heart. Things you worry about really are the things you worship. And God is saying, would you leave behind the temporary things and place your worship on the ultimate satisfaction of your soul and find in him life and life abundant? The question is, as you read through these plagues, is what is it going to take for that moment to happen? For, for some of the Egyptians, it, it only took the first couple. They realized who God was. Like, literally the magicians, which we would know as Satanists, are saying in this, this is the finger of God. Do you not see this, Pharaoh? Like, even Satanists are seeing this. And Pharaoh is going, nope, I just will not submit. I refuse until the final plague. Exodus chapter 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Let's go to verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well, they will be allowed wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. What God's doing in this passage is a couple things. He's judging sin. 
Romans tells us the wages of sin is death and that there is a punishment for our rebellion and it's that we left the only source of life and went after death. So he's punishing sin, but also there's some retribution here because Pharaoh killed the firstborn of the Hebrews. And so he's saying, okay, you think you have power over life? I am the ultimate author and giver of life. And so he brings this punishment on, and, and it's kind of hard to read. I, I, I'm reading through this, looking at my firstborn son, going, man, it just reveals to me that I don't understand the gravity of sin. Like, if I have a problem with this passage, what's true is I have a problem with the rest of Scripture, which says there's punishment due in our sin. See, but what you will find true if you read with an honest eye from Genesis to Revelation is that every time punishment is cast on sin, there is always an opportunity for repentance. Every time, even in the Old Testament, even right here, there is always an opportunity for repentance. And so what God is going to do is he's going to offer a provision and he's going to tell Moses, say, hey, tell the Israelites if they want to be spared, they need to go kill the lamb, eat the lamb for dinner, and put the blood on the doorpost. It was an avenue for repentance. Let's keep reading on how he says to do that. Chapter 12, verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So essentially, there was a choice. Will you choose to put your faith in this message from the Lord that you can offer a lamb and put blood on your doorposts? Like, imagine this. You've just heard the destroyer is coming to take your firstborn. Do you just flee Egypt? Like, do you just run away? Do you try to outrun judgment? Or do you take this crazy faith step, kill a lamb, put blood on your doorpost, and then just sit under the blood on the doorpost and wait and hope that God is going to be true to his word. See, he was calling them into a step of faith because they were being redeemed from slavery. And the word redeemed means you had to be bought at a price to be brought out of bondage because though Egypt was evil and worshiping gods, Joshua chapter 24 tells us that Israel was also worshiping gods. So they weren't guiltless in this. They were guilty too. Being Hebrew wouldn't save them. Making the choice to step underneath the blood of the sacrificial lamb would spare them. This judgment was coming from Pharaoh to the slave, which meant no earthly status was going to make you um, exempt from the punishment of sin, except if something else took the punishment for you. So he sets this up as a thing that they would begin to celebrate. So for generations and generations, um, every year they would stop and they would say, and they would sacrifice the lamb and they would put blood on, they would remember when the blood made the payment that was theirs. The choice was a dead child or a dead lamb. The lamb would take the judgment that was due the people. See, when Jesus was having dinner with his disciples in the last week and the night that he was betrayed, it wasn't just any dinner. It was this dinner. They were celebrating Passover, which meant they were pausing and remembering the judgment due sin 
and how a lamb was sacrificed to spare their life, to cover their sin, to cover their idolatry. And what they would have expected Jesus to do in that moment when, they took the, when he took the bread was to say something, to say something particular that they've said for thousands of years. See, they expected him to break the bread and say this. This is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in need come and celebrate Passover with us. See, what's interesting is this area of what I'm going to call grace given to the Old Testament believers or the Old Testament um, Israelites was actually extended to more than just Israel. Like if somebody heard that this is how you got spared, they were free to also do this. And so there's this invitation for thousands of years. This is the bread that we remember where God spared. See, but he takes the bread, and instead of saying this, he breaks the bread, and he says this with Luke chapter 22, verse 19. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus is doing in that moment is he's identifying himself as the Passover lamb. Saying, it used to be a lamb over there. You used to eat bread. But what I want you to see what's happening now is that I am taking the place of the lamb. Where you were full of guilt and sin and idolatry and you needed a lamb to be slaughtered. I'm stepping into that place. I'm becoming the sacrificial lamb. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, not only was he the perfect spotless lamb, but he was also the firstborn son of God. And so you see this, this thing come full circle through Jesus in which the sin that was due the firstborn has now been put upon Jesus. The sin that was due the lamb has now been put upon Jesus. And Jesus took the punishment that was yours and that was mine. If we're willing to take the step of faith and say, I choose to place myself under Jesus. I will submit. I will surrender. I will sit under him and he will cover me. And I will take that step of faith. We're going to celebrate communion here together, but we're going to do it a little bit different. We, we just read about God bringing Israel out and into a place of worship, and I just want to create an opportunity for you to worship the Lord. If you're here and you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is a, um, a moment for you to reflect on your Savior, to rejoice in what he has done by covering and shedding his blood so that you might be uh, forgiven. And so we're going to play a worship song, and you're, you can sit, you can stand, you can do whatever you feel led to do, and just process with the Lord. Just pray. Praise God. Um, and then whenever you're ready throughout the song, feel free to partake of communion. Um, if you're here and you're not a believer, you haven't yet submitted your life to the Lord, uh, the word of God would say, let this pass. So don't, don't partake. Um, it, would, it is reserved for those who have placed their life under Jesus. If you want to know more about that, we can talk about that um, in a few minutes here. But, but let's just take this minute. Worship our Savior, the Lamb of God, who's taken away the sins of the world. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Isn't it such good news that he took what we deserved? That he took the punishment that was on us, and, and not only did he take the punishment, but he delivered us to life and life abundant. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I've never submitted my life to God. Maybe you're standing with Pharaoh today saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Let the words of Exodus 
Sin is a warning for our hearts today that God in his mercy will remove every idol from your life to deliver you from what will ultimately destroy you. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you dearly and wants life and life abundant for you. If you're here and you know it's time to place uh, your faith in Jesus and, and find life and life abundant in him, come find me, come find one of us. We'd love to have a conversation with you about the new life Jesus offers with us. Would you stand and sing the service out with us today?